Good morning. Have you ever said something you wish you could take back? Oh, good. I'm glad none of you have had that issue. Well, let me tell you a story. Now, Christy and I have a specific rule uh, that we've tried to have from the beginning of our marriage, and it's this. We will never cuss at each other. Whether in conversation or an argument, we will never use vulgarity against each other. But there was this one time. Christy and I were in a dark spot, really, in our relationship. Uh, it was not a good season for us. We were clearly not on the same page. We were really not on the same team. So a lot of outside circumstances that were going on in our life that we could not control, and we weren't happy about that. And um, we got into an argument. In the middle of the argument, my wife said a, a crass word towards me. And my wife is... She, she hates conflict. So I'll say she's conflict-averse. I tend to be conflict-aggressive. I like a good argument. I like a good debate. I like to get into it a little bit. Because I partly like to win. I'm very competitive. So my wife said a crass word, and I said a very coarse word. Now some of you are like, tell me what it is, tell me what it is. Friends, we're Christians. We're not going to be like that, okay? But I said a word that inflicted pain and anger in my wife that I had never seen before. She said, let's get into the bedroom. And so, because she didn't want the boys to see what was about to transpire. And so I marched into the bedroom. She closes the door. And she went from upset to completely erupting into this anger and crying moment. Now, if you've ever been at that point uh, with your wife, I hope you never have to go through it more than once because it is not a good place to be. She confronted me on a few things. I confronted her on a few things. I'm thankful to say that we both apologized. We both took responsibility for what should happen. And, and I can tell you that we've never had that experience again. But mostfully, most, most of what I want to say is I am I'm deeply indebted to Miss Christy Henry Schaffner for 24 years of marriage and for her allowing me to live another day after that moment. <laughs> I will tell you that even telling her that I was going to share this this morning, even the generality of it, shot an, e shot an emoji back through text that was kind of like, because <laughs> it's, it's still tender. It hurts. I wish it had never happened. I wish that I'd never said it. But the reality is, is that most of us sit in a room like this, and with our happy faces on, we look back on a week where we've said, done, and been a part of some things that we go, where, where, where did this come from? This is not who I want to be. And the challenge about this series of enemies of the heart is that Jesus squarely puts it to the source. The issue is our hearts. What I said in that moment to my wife was already here. And I have to take responsibility for that. And so last week we began to address this issue of the heart. Now when we describe the heart, what we're describing is this. The heart is the center of the physical, emotional, and spiritual life of humans. It pumps for us our, our motives, our emotions, our desires, our thoughts, the very motivation of why we get up to do what we do, our impulses even. 
And so the heart, when we describe it, we're not simply talking about a physical organ. What we're really talking about is the very character by which we are before God. Our truest sense of self. And the challenge became last week is that we realize that the heart is deceitful above all things. That all of us have a heart that's prone to drift towards self and sin. And a life that's set up for itself only leads back to itself. It doesn't become what God has intended it to become. It doesn't begin to live with a purpose and meaning that is rooted in the very nature and character of God. It begins to prioritize our comforts, our desires, our preferences. Everything about our life becomes about us. And we don't become who God has intended us to be. So I want to challenge you with a passage today. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 15. If you have your Bibles, I want you to jump in there. And here's what's going on. The religious leaders of the day, a group of Pharisees, have begun to confront Jesus on some of his thoughts, his teaching, but even now in the actions of how some of his disciples, his followers, are prioritizing some of the behavior of their life. And they've made it an issue about cleansing, ceremonial cleansing, that there, there are laws and ways to handle appropriate cleansing, literally the washing of their hands before they eat. And they're pressing in on this issue with Jesus that somehow the disciples just don't get it. They don't understand what really matters in this world. And so picking a fight somewhat with Jesus, Jesus obliges the conversation and begins to step in to this moment. Now, for our practical purposes, it's really an issue about cleanliness. It's really an issue about the outward rather than the inward. It's more about public perception than it is private purpose. That's what's happening here. And so Jesus begins to grab this moment, and he uses a quote that's found in both Jeremiah and Isaiah, and he says this starting in verse 8. These People. Now, anytime any conversation starts with them or they, it's usually not a good thing. So Jesus, because he's God, we're going to give this to him, okay? He's the only one that can pull this card. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teaching are, teachings are merely human rules. Now, what's caught in the midst of this is this challenge. It's an understanding of the written law, the first five books of the Old Testament, or what we would call the First Testament, and what is oral tradition. They have begun to take what is written in Scripture and then many of the other practices that had been built up in that day to help express their faith. Uh, they're trying to wrestle with the validity. Where do we put the emphasis? Where do we put the value? And Jesus calls them out in front of the crowd surrounding them and just says, hey, I'm just going to tell you. They honor me with their lips. They say what's right. But in their hearts, they don't really have a relationship with God. They don't understand the very heart or nature of who God is. He literally goes to say, they worship me in vain, meaning the life that they're living before God and claiming, what they've really boiled it down to is all these teachings and understanding of who God is and the very cake character of what God wants us to live out, they've made it into just a practice of morality. It's just a bunch of rules. It's not worth even really pursuing if we make that the emphasis. So they wrestle with this idea of honor. 
Jesus uses the word, they honor me. And honor is different than respect. Honor is when you see a person or have a relationship, you hold it to the highest value by which you see them. So it's kind of like this. Here's the difference between honor and respect. At Christmas time, we go to see our grandparents. We go and we see our grandparents, and, and when we come into the house, we honor Grandpa's house because this is his home. This is how he wants the TV remote to be handled. This is how he wants uh, to be spoken to. This is how he wants us to handle when we eat cookies, whether to leave them in the dining room or take them into the living room. Now, as children, we respect Grandpa, so we do what he wants so he doesn't get upset, frustrated, or have to go through the lecture. If we honor Grandpa because we love him, we make sure that we go above and beyond to not even be concerned about what the rules may be, to make sure that he knows he is a priority in our lives. You understand what I'm saying? And that's what Jesus is calling out. You respect this faith. You respect this religion. You respect this tradition. But in your heart of hearts, you don't hold God to the highest value. And so what you've done is you've taken his teachings and his laws and everything. And you've made it some sort of religiosity, traditionalism. But you have not compelled people to chase after God with their own hearts. Man, we're only two verses in today, people. Might want to put your seatbelts on, okay? So here's what he says after this. He says, so Jesus called the crowd back to him. Meaning... It might have been a little tense, and people are beginning to leave. Oh, people, people, come, come, come on now. This is going to get good. Here's what he says. Listen and understand. What goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of the mouth, that's, that's what defiles them. Then the disciples came to him and asked, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? He replied, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by its root. Leave them. They are blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into the pit. This is kind of a, a, a precarious conversation here. But the challenge is this. Where does impurity really come from? What causes impurity from our lives? Literally, Jesus uses this term, defiles them. Once again, they're in an argument or a discussion about ceremonial cleansing and what's appropriate, Right? And they've made this issue about, hey, hey, you know, if you don't wash your hands and then what you eat, then you've been made unclean before God. So they get in this little argument. But Jesus is pressing and saying, hey, you know, our foundation of truth, the Old Testament, the First Testament, gives us an understanding of the nature of God. But I am here as God in the flesh to reset, to recalibrate the priority and trajectory of what we need to value above all else. The Torah, the law, it's foundational. But our purpose, our created being before God, is to live out a life that honors the relationship with God more than the rules of tradition. It'd be like saying it this way. It is what is internal to our nature that defiles us, not what's external. Literally, the passage says, whatever you eat, it comes out. And I don't think we need to explain that this morning, right? But what comes out of our mouth is already rooted in our hearts. The disciples do a funny thing. They say, Jesus, do you you realize that the Pharisees are offended that you're speaking like this? 
Jesus is saying, you know what life is about? It's about being rooted in a relationship with Christ. Because a life that's rooted in itself ends with itself. It doesn't flourish. It doesn't grow the roots that are needed to survive and to even flourish in the world that we're a part of. And if we make our emphasis about the public appearance before peers, our private life will be destroyed. We will make it about the facade and not the very faith that we've been called to be a part of. So Peter says this in verse 15. Jesus explained the parable to us. The next words out of Jesus' mouth are not a compliment. Are you still so dull? Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes out of the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, like murder and adultery and sexual immorality and theft and false testimony and slander. These These are what defile a person. But eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. Peter, I'm sure feeling the tension of religious leaders who they admire and should have their faith figured out, people who are held of high esteem, concerned about the offense that Jesus has just created in their relationship, Asks for a clarification. He phones a friend, right? And Jesus says, are, are, are you still so dull? Now, uh, partly, partly what maybe is, is happening here most likely is that Jesus is saying, come on, Peter, you get this. You know what I'm talking about. Peter, come on now. You've been with me long enough to know that the heart of the matter is the heart. That internally, who we are goes public. And it's not about trying to keep the public appearance together. It's about surrendering who you are before God. And so Jesus uses this phrase, Peter, are you so dull? In other words, Peter may not have been the brightest candle in the menorah. Can I say that? It's like, come on, Peter. And then he goes through this great speech. It's about what's inside. (laughs) It's about what's left to ourselves. When when left to ourselves, what we do is pursue ourselves. We're like a, a dog chasing our tail. Our wants, our comforts, our desires, our will, everything is about me, me, me. It's centered on us. It's what we want for ourselves, our comfort, our priority, what we think it should be. And in this passage, what's happened is God-fearing people have taken the tradition of faith and they've begun to exalt it so that they were worshiping their tradition. That the very ritual and tradition had become the heart of their faith, not the God who gave it to them. And so Jesus is trying to pull it back. But friends, can we be honest here? What fuels our heart drives our life, doesn't it? 
What is the reason that you get up in the morning? What, what, what is it that causes you to prioritize your life the way it is? What, what is it that causes you to evaluate the way people live and act? What is it that causes you to think about the world around you in the way that it does? It has to do with the very priorities in our own heart. And it's fueling us. And what we, can't be, what we have to be careful of is if our life is built on ourself and not on our Savior, then everything about this world becomes about me. And friends, that's a heart stopper. That clogs the very nature of what God is trying to create in us. That's what requires us to consider having surgery. And open heart surgery is risky. But unlike the TV show, The Good Doctor, we have a little religious humor here. The great physician, right? God wants us to have a new heart. God wants us to be transformed and changed. But a life that's not rooted in Jesus, a life that's not centered on pursuing God above all else, becomes susceptible to our own selfishness and the sin that so easily entangles us. So let's, let's use this illustration this morning if we can. Now, I need you to know that I'm not a doctor. I did stay at my own house last night, but I'm not a doctor. Well, now I look like a doctor, right? I'm a doctor. For illustration purposes, let's just tell you that uh, I have your chart with me today. And we're going to look at your heart for a moment. Can we do that? I, you know, last service, we had a couple of doctors in the office and I could, or in the auditorium, and I could just tell, he's no doctor. He's like, I just... We just want you to get the picture of what's going to happen, okay? But I don't know if anybody's looked at your heart in a while, but let me give you some warning signs that you may be in need of heart surgery. Can we do this? The heart has four different chambers. And the first chamber we want to look at is this first one, and it's, it's a real blocker. It's called guilt. And guilt is the idea that I owe you. Guilt is the understanding that we've sinned or we've wronged somebody or we've broken a relationship. And so we feel like we've got to repay them. We've got to keep playing it over and over and over until we've paid this debt to this person. You see it on their face. Their head drops. Every time the situation shows up, they tend to represent more of a beat dog than they do the flourishing person that you, you once knew. It's a real killer, people. And guilt is not the life that God intended you to live in. Maybe that's not your heart stopper. Maybe it's, maybe it's the second one. And it's anger. Anger is the concept that you owe me. Now, anger hides itself in a lot of different ways. Anger shows up sometimes as hurt. Sometimes it shows up as uh, disappointment, or even disgust. But anger is this idea that the injustice that has happened to me is so great that I will lash out over and over and over to you until I feel like I have gotten back what I lost. And he'll kill you. He'll drop you dead. Guys, I'll just tell you, after last service, I had a few dads that came to talk to me, a few husbands that came to talk to me. And men, I'm just going to say this. We wear anger like a badge, like it somehow proves our testosterone is at a higher level than the average Joe. 
And I will tell you that anger, in righteous anger, is appropriate. Jesus used it. But one of the reasons Jesus' anger was seen as righteous was because it was, he wasn't prone to anger over and over and over. It wasn't normal in his character. It was something that only showed up when grand injustice happened. Not when somebody spilled their tea on your lap. Not when somebody showed up late. Now, friends, I don't mean to discredit some of the things that we've got going on. But we live in a culture that anger shows up in our boardrooms, our ballparks, our restaurants, and our home as if it's just oxygen. And our culture is going to have a heart attack because we choose anger more than anything else. I've stepped out of line a little bit. Let me step back in. Third, the third blockage is greed. And greed is kind of funny. It's kind of odd. It's the idea that I owe me. I deserve it. I deserve it. Now, this shows up in a lot of different ways, our time, our talent, and our treasure. But we live in a culture that spends a lot of time trying to focus on self and how to get what we want for ourselves. We deserve more stuff. We work harder. We're trying to produce something out of ourselves because we deserve that promotion. We deserve that job. We deserve that office. We find ourselves maybe even financially being the kind of people that save and spend willfully for our benefit, but when it comes to being generous back to others, or specifically God, we give sparingly. We justify it. We prioritize all the other things we have to have for the convenience of our life, but all the while miss out on how God might be leveraging us if greed wasn't so prevalent in our lives. All three of these are dangerous. But friends, this last one I'm going to share with you is the widow maker. It's the most deadly of all. It's the issue of jealousy. And jealousy is the issue that you feel like, that I feel like God owes you. It gets to the point where we kind of just look at life and how it should be, and we think that God's kind of just, God's just against us. And so what we do is we begin to look at other people. We step on social media. We see people and uh, the vehicles that they drive, the jobs that they have, the relationships that they're in, and they're like, God, why isn't that me? I wish I had this. I wish I had that. God, you should give that to me. God, I deserve this. God, I'm not as bad as them. God, I, I've done so much... And we start taking all of this guilt and anger and greed and we throw it squarely at God and say, God, you've not given me the life I should have had. Now, this is sobering. I know most of the time your doctor probably sits down with you and just probably asks if you have health insurance. But I'm your pastor. And friends, I think we live in a world right now that is consumed by guilt. It's retaliating with anger. It's pursuing its own greed. 
And it's blaming God because of our jealousy. And here's the issue. We have to begin to monitor our heart, not our life. It's not about don't say these words. It's not about don't do these things. It's not about trying to get a list of things lined up together so that publicly we look like good people, nice people, people who are responsible and caring. No. Because the reality is, if we only worry about the external, how do we know the difference between a Christian and a Boy Scout? The reality is, it's our changed heart. Here's, here's the challenge. Our words and our deeds really are simply gauges for what's going on inside. What's beneath the surface, what's in our hearts, eventually becomes what we do. We are not, and we, we are not defiled by what we do, but we're defiled by what's already in our hearts, our selfishness and our sin. So maybe you snap in anger. Maybe you snap in anger. It already existed in your heart. And maybe the question you have to ask, well, what do you have against that person? Why would you speak to them in that way? Why would you treat them like that? You have sex with somebody who's not your spouse. And lust has already consumed you. It's expressed in something horrific. And you find yourself enraged. Enraged in the, the brokenness of yourself. The things that you've done. You, you buy, you buy, you buy again. Because you want to surround yourself. You want to show to the world, my life is good. Everything's taken care of. I'm flourishing Tiger blood, right? You know, I, my life is all of a sudden at the ultimate peak of all it could be. Look at all the stuff that I have. You spout some critical words towards a person. You relive a wound over and over and over again. Somehow assuming it's their situation to fix when the brokenness of our own hearts is killing us. If you're like me, what you want is a chance to change. You, want, you can't take back those moments, but you certainly don't have to be that man. You don't have to be that woman. You can have the marriage that you wanted. You can have the, the experience of volunteerism or being on a board or, or coaching your kids. Or you can be the kind of person that walks into the office and spends time with friends. And people go, not that, hey, I like him or, hey, I like her. But they go, what is it about them? I know who they used to be. They're not like that anymore. What's changed them? And outside of the transforming work of Jesus, by his spirit, will we be changed? The question becomes, where does the power of a changed heart come from? The power lies in the grace of Jesus, not in the lies of sin. Our lies tell us you're justified. You should be that way. Just work harder. Prove to the world who you are. And Jesus says, my grace is enough for you. You've been made in my image. You, you are valued not because of your performance or your work or your wallet. You're valued because you were created to live a life of love, of truth and grace and mercy. 
and to let a world know that's broken and hurting that there is hope found in God. So think about where you work. Challenge yourself a little bit. What is the issue for us? What is it when people say, don't go into that room, don't look at that website, don't, uh, don't look at your watch, don't say mean things behind it. What is it about yourself that our heart begins to jump towards that? It lurches like it wants it. The solution isn't to come up with more don'ts. The solution isn't sitting down and trying to put a list of all the behaviors and actions you've got to change. The issue is, will we before God surrender our hearts in our brokenness? Will we allow God through his spirit, through his word, through the relationships around it, will we let God take this bitterness and this brokenness and pull it from us and fill it with his grace and his truth? Where Jesus and the crowd differed <laughs> is that Jesus is talking about who we are in private while society wants to try and present who we are in public. And if you take care of the heart the rest will take care of itself. Maybe we get caught up in it this way. Religion deals with the externals, the deeds, the words, the stuff we do. But our relationship with Jesus deals with the internal, the heart, the character of who God's calling us to be. That's why I love this promise out of Ezekiel. It says this. This is God speaking through Ezekiel, to the nation of Israel. I will plant a new heart and a new spirit inside of you. I will take out your stubborn, stony heart and give you a willing and tender heart of flesh. I will put my spirit, God's spirit, inside of you and inspire you to live by my statutes and my laws. What Ezekiel is alluding to is that one of the ways that God transforms us is not only by the work of his spirit, but the foundation of his word. His word. Each of us need a new heart. Each of us need God to transform who we are. I want to encourage you to come back next week. Because next week we're going to talk about physical therapy. And while we have learned in week one that the heart is deceitful above all things, and today we learn that we have to confront the private in order to transform the public, it doesn't work the other way around. There are clear changes in the priorities, values, relationships that God wants us to deal with so that we might flourish in the character of who he has called us to be. Friends, there's good news. This is not a battle that you have to take on your own. This is not about working harder and smarter. This is about surrendering our heart before God and being willing, wherever God may confront, in our guilt, our anger, our jealousy, our greed, that we would say, God, have your way in us. Let's move to our time of response.
I don't know what it is about your life, but I know in my life, I am prone to push away. Prone to push away from friends and relationships that speak to the heart of who I am. And maybe that's where you are today. But there's something about people that when we begin to protect our hearts, when we begin to surround ourselves with our production of what we do, we begin to stack up the things that mark our selfish identity. By society's standard, the reality is what we're doing is we're putting on a face that says, I'm good, aren't you? But with every decision towards our selfishness, to every decision to value our production over our relationships, every decision to begin to prioritize our comfort and our meaning and our value of vulnerable, authentic relationships before God and people, what we really do is push away from a world that God has called us to. We step out of the light. We blend in with the crowd around us. Friends, if heart surgery is really what's needed, and friends, we know that this is at an incredibly difficult cost. God is asking us to step into a light. And we could be seen more clearly as we are. We are broken. We are flawed. We are people who are prone to pursue ourselves above everything else. But when we embrace a life of surrender before our Savior, and we can stand before a world in complete vulnerability and authenticity, people quit saying things like, oh, I want to be like him, or I wish I was like her. And they start asking, what's the difference with them? Imagine, imagine a world where people who followed Christ did not pull away, but stepped out and stood up. An agenda only driven by selflessness, not for self-promotion, but service. Friends, we live in a world that uh, we see all sorts of people who hide behind the mask. Pastors who are protected by their power, by their anger, It's not just a pastoral thing. It's a Christian thing. And what if the greatest dilemma of the movement of Christ is that we chose to hide behind our personal preferences, our view of politics, our priorities of entertainment, 
efforts and works? What if we demolished all of those and just stood and said, measure me by one thing and one thing only, that God is at work within me? How would that change us? What kind of men and women could we be to a community that's in darkness? How might our marriages stand out to those that are hurting, longing for marriage, injured in marriage? What what might our testimony be if in those moments of brokenness and, and failure, if God began to put us back together? What if, what if we were able to lay down our guilt and, and, and what if we were able to, to lay down our anger and we could reconcile, stand in a restored relationship, knowing that our past, in God's term, is as far as the east is from the west. And even though it feels like it's right here today, what if, just what if, what if we could close the book and draw a line in the sand and say, it could be different. What if we could say we're sorry? What if we could renew those vows again and we could say, I honor you. Friends, I think our world wants a church like that. If that could happen in our marriage, what might it do in our family? If that could happen in our household, how might it change how we work? If it could impact our job and the people around, how might it impact the people that we hang out with? How might it call the church as a whole to a higher standard of vulnerability and authenticity before God that what we say with our lips is just simply the outpouring of what God's doing inside of us? That's the church. That's the church that God's calling us through our series. So today, we're going to respond. Some of us will come to these benches in prayer. Some of us will go to tables to take the bread and the juice and be reminded that it's the transforming work of Jesus that changes us. Some of us go to the give and respond boxes. Maybe there's a prayer request. Maybe there's a decision of faith. Whatever we do in this moment, whether you call this church your home or whether you're visiting with us for the first time, here's what's about to happen. The band's gonna step forward and they're gonna lead us in a couple more songs. And as they begin to sing, everybody will stand to their feet. And then when people are, are ready, they will step forward and they'll respond at the benches, at the tables, at the given respond boxes. And you are welcome to join us in this response. But friends, this is not about playing faith. This is not about putting on a good show. This is not about making sure everybody else around us thinks that our home is in order and our marriage is in shape and my job is awesome. And This is about one thing and one thing alone. That the heart that God is placing in me would change me from the inside out so that the world around me would be changed for 